This podcast feels unfamiliar, bigger somehow. It's all that's left of our bad takes. What podcast is this? Well, it's America's moldiest podcast, The Pod People. I'm Matisse Van Rossum, and I wish I knew what day it was. I'm Ben Sheets, and this podcast seems so unfamiliar. I I, I just said that. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, I also have one that you just said, uh, and my name is Cleveland Mosier, and I'm getting moldier and oldier. <laughs> and we are very excited today to be joined by a special guest. We are joined by Ted Henschke, who is the head of production for Dread X and the editor-in-chief for Dread XP. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. Yo, what's up, guys? I didn't know I should have a tagline when I came here, so I didn't prepare one, so I'm just going to say hello. Oh, you're good. No worries, man. Um, <laughs> so before we get started with our uh, film for the week, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, tell the listeners uh, what you do, and uh, so, sort of your your background and relationship with horror as a genre. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, uh, so I'm currently the head of productions for uh, DreadX, which is the game production uh, wing of uh, the the Dread label, which is uh, a horror indie production label. We put out about 20 movies a year. Um, we recently came out with uh, Butt Boy and Sea Fever is another one of ours. Uh, Torpedo is another one of ours that recently came out. Uh, we're coming out with Uncle Peckerhead recently. We recently did the re-release of Circus of the Dead. So, you know, we, we put out a lot of movies, uh, and I do the game stuff. I'm largely in, in charge of the production for the Dread X collection and a bunch of other cool stuff that, you know, we haven't announced yet. So, um, my connection with horror is that I was a horror journalist for almost eight years now. Jesus. And, uh, you know, started off in film, um, moved more into games as time went on. And uh, honestly, I'm really looking forward to being able to just sit down and chat about movies again, because that used to be my favorite part of the uh, the film journalism side of things. So I'm happy to be here. Well, uh, it's our favorite part, too, and we're really happy to have you. Uh, what what kind of uh, horror films do you usually go for? What are some of your some of your favorites, uh, you know, subgenre or specific or otherwise? When it comes to horror, um, my personal taste is more towards like ghost stories, supernatural stories, things like that. I'm not a huge slasher movie fan, um, not as much as probably your average horror fan. But um, you know, like I actually started as uh, the found footage guy for Dread Central. Like that's what I what I did for my first horror gig, and this is when I was like 20. So a lot of that supernatural stuff is really, really close to my heart. Um, all those those ghost films, the things that go bump in the night. I love all that kind of stuff. Um, so I would say that's that, that's my biggest affinity is for the, those kind of unique uh, ghost stories. And I, I will say that I really have enjoyed the past uh, few years, the, the, the trend of uh, what people will call elevated horror. I mean, I don't really believe in the, the, the genre categorizations of like elevated versus non-elevated horror. Um, I just think that that's kind of the direction the genre is going in for kind of headier horror. And um, I'm all about it. So and, and luckily, this is one of those movies that I think pretty much everyone would agree is uh, elevated horror. So there's plenty to talk about. 
Absolutely. Well, I think that's a perfect segue into introducing the film we're talking about. Uh, We are talking about the brand new 2020 Australian film Relic, which is uh, directed by uh, Natalie Erica James and stars Emily Mortimer, Robin Nevin, and Bella Heathcote, and is the story of a daughter, mother, and grandmother who are haunted by the manifestation of dementia that consumes their family home. Uh, So, yeah, uh, I had this one on my radar a little bit. Uh, I had heard some good things, but uh, Ted actually recommended that we talk about this one for the podcast because you saw it recently and got pretty excited about it. So I'd love it if we could uh, start out with just some of your like initial thoughts on this, uh, Ted, to sort of lead us in. Yeah, um, you know, I didn't really realize that when I was kind of ranting about this movie that it would lead to a podcast discussion. Um, (laughs) Relic is one of those movies that you come across once in a blue moon that, for me, this movie hit in a way that most films don't in terms of, like, what the terror was. Um, Like, the terrors of dementia, etc. Because, like, I'm not someone that really believes in, like, supernatural possessions. I don't believe that... I'm a pretty big dude. So like, that's the thing that like always kind of like didn't really ring to me about slashers is that like, I'm a pretty big dude. I work out a lot. So like, I'm not saying that I could take any slasher killer in a fight, but it's just like not an active fear that I have that someone's going to like break into my house. Cause I, I, I used to be a bouncer and shit. Like, it's just like, oh, me that too. Kind of, yeah. Like that kind of stuff just doesn't really like scare me, I guess. Cause I, I, I feel like I could like get a relative grip on the situation, but like as soon as like, a demon starts crawling out of a TV, like that's when I know I'm fucked. So it's like the things that I can't overcome with my physical body. And one of those things is like mental decay and decline. And it's, it's always been um, something that I've been afraid of. Well, I wouldn't say always, I was like four once and I didn't even know what it was, but <laughs> uh, like, it's something that I, I've been afraid of for quite a long time is like the, the declining mental health of, of age. Cause I, I think it's, you know, it's really tragic. So when I watched this film, it, it struck me on a level that most horror films don't. And that was the first kind of the big, powerful moment. But the other thing is, is that um, it's really, really rare to find a horror art film. There are plenty of horror art films out there where the monster is a metaphor. But it's pretty rare to find a horror art film that plays the horror elements straight. Generally, you'll find that with 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 artsy indie horror um, they'll, the, the, the metaphor becomes too either on the nose or it becomes so about focusing on the metaphor that they forget that this also has to be like a scary movie. Yeah. It's, and, it's uh, often I will sort say, of nebulous. It gets kind of lost in the fog. Uh, well, it kind of, it just, it kind of gets, it drowns itself in its own ejaculate is, is, is most <laughs> indie horror films is like you, you have this, like, Oh, it's so deep and it's so emotive. And then it's just like, nothing really happens. So when we see certain films like It Follows or The Babadook that manage to not only have this message that's clear, um, it's not something you have to read into too much. Um, it's also, but it's also like a damn fine horror movie. Those are the movies I kind of really like. There was a there was a film that came out. Uh, I want to say five six years ago. No, it must have been for. I'm trying to judge it based on like failed relationships. And I was like, who was I dating when I saw that movie? Oh yeah, I feel bad. <laughs> so this is probably about four years ago, a movie called monster. I don't know if you've seen monster. Yeah. Yes. So that's, well, that's another, when, there's a couple of movies named monster, which one, <laughs> the one with the mother and the daughter hanging, that get attacked by a monster in a car. Oh, okay. And no, it's I about, actually have not the, seen that one. 
that's another kind of elevated quote elevated horror film but that one's a little bit more on the nose because it's about a mother and daughter that get attacked by a monster in a car and then a lot of the relationship between the mother and the daughter comes to the forefront with the the neglect and kind of like abuse and stuff and then there's also a monster trying to break in and I, i always like those kinds of movies that have that supernatural element that you can point to and say like there's something going on and isn't just I'm trying to think of a good counterexample, but uh, I should have come slightly more prepared for this. But I watch a shit ton of bad horror movies, like just like a truly unconscionable amount. Like it should be like basically over the past eight years, I've probably watched two horror movies a day on average. Um, Love love that. Oh, there we go. The Midnight Ghost Swim, I think is what it's called. The Midnight Swim? What was it? I'm looking it up. Midnight Swim. It was it was a recent movie I watched. Yeah, The Midnight Swim was a recent found a footage horror I think movie I watched, and that one is like one of those where the entire movie is about just like wanking. Like it's just <laughs> about like look how word? long my shots are. Look how emotive it is. It's just like, and I I, I hated it. Like I I really like I I I don't use that word often because I I don't like like to shit on creators, but like that's an example of a film that. Is is just entirely lost in its own metaphor. Pretentious so, is, I, I think, the word. I think yeah. that's such an interesting place to start because I think, while I mostly agree with you, and I think this movie in particular kind of dodges some of those bullets of I, I like to call the subgenre almost a twenty four horror. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you know, movies inspired by like Hereditary or The Witch, where it's all about atmosphere and slow burns and metaphor. Honestly, though, I I might push back a little bit on this one because I think my biggest criticism with it is it's a bit slow in the first half. I was hoping for a bit more. I think it focused Hmm. so much Hmm. on the family drama that it kind of lost some opportunities for some good horror moments. Interesting. I I enjoy. I mean, I notoriously on the podcast love a slow burn, so <laughs> I, I definitely didn't feel anything there. And I I like having an opportunity to get to know the the protagonists well enough, so I'm concerned for them when the horror occurs. Yeah, you know, I'm really glad, Ted, that you brought up It Follows, because I was thinking about that movie in reference to this film a lot myself. I I enjoyed this film quite a bit, and I think that in terms of its execution, it um, it does everything, like, extremely well. Uh, The pace doesn't bother me. I didn't think it was too slow, but I actually think that maybe one of my major criticisms with this is I think that its metaphor is maybe a little bit too on the nose, and I think that sometimes it kind of forgets that it's supposed to be like a horror narrative. Like, I, I felt the whole time that, like, it it never felt like the house was actually haunted. It's like every time we see this kind of like weird specter, it's like, oh, it's literally just the degradation of the, the, the grandmother's like mental state. And I think that that as a metaphor, it's extremely powerful. And the way that it's visually represented is extremely successful, but it never felt like anything more than its metaphor to me, whereas something like it follows is at its complete surface level a straight up monster movie 
but mm-hmm. it is representative of many other things, the trauma caused by sexual violence, so on and so forth, and the way that that follows people for their whole lives. And I I wanted this movie to to bridge that gap just a little bit more. I wanted I wanted their I wanted it to feel more like a ghost story. I would say I, I, almost, I, I would say it almost pulls too many punches in the first half. You know, you get moments of you know, for example, the cabin, which I think are great. The Some dream the, like the dream yeah, sequence. The, the dream sequence yeah. of mm-hmm. the cabin and the decayed old man. Um I think are fantastic, but they work as grotesque set pieces and less scary scenes in themselves because they're so uh, verite and kind of on their own mm-hmm. in dream sequences. They're kind of separated from everything else. I kind of wish things were integrated a little bit more overall. Interesting. Yeah, I, I was I was hit pretty hard by those sequences, uh, especially because like the production value is so effective um, uh, and and rich with with detail. Yeah, like uh, I said, they're they're the, great, but they kind of yeah, feel a little disparate. I, okay, I have a, a fun way to kind of tie in all three of these points. Um, uh, Ted, you mentioned the Babadook earlier, and yes, or, uh, I think uh, it, funny enough, like also being an Australian horror film, uh, uh, it's probably our best comparison because yeah. like it also I, structurally they're very similar uh and the reveal that the horror is a metaphor comes at the end in a, in a similar fashion i think that said i think one of the strengths of the babadook is that is the babadook like it has a very strong character in of itself like it has a a, a very strong personality with its book it has the whole rhyme built around it like it is a monster first and foremost in the film and you have that that sustenance of just wondering about it so when the metaphor comes around it's an addition it's an additional element here i i I do wonder like if the at the beginning i think one of ben's gripes could also be tied into the fact that like the personality of the house is a haunted house and that's essentially what we have to go off of for me that was enough like i i was wondering the whole time like what the what was behind the house and the the mystery of it was enough and not having an identifier like the Babadook was was okay for me. But I can see that gripe. Like I can see how you would want something a little bit more there. But uh the yeah, the production value was enough for me. Yeah. I mean, I think I think for for me, a, a good example is like we see a lot in the first half of this kind of like looming specter of dementia, this sort of like Slender Man esque, uh, you know, like spooky uh, creature that kind of like lurks in the background of shots. The problem for me where it became disjointed is that I never felt like that represented a danger for anybody other than the grandmother who was obviously like losing her mind like losing her memories and stuff you know the a a scene that i think is executed as a as a horror set piece very well is like when the grandmother comes back and she asks like emily mortimer to check under the bed she says it's here it's under the bed and we get this really creepy scene of like emily mortimer like going under the bed and like staring into the darkness for a really long time and seeing something kind of like move but i never felt like that represented a threat to her you know what i mean it it's like this is obviously the degradation of one of these characters represented physically but it doesn't it didn't feel like a monster to me or a ghost or whatever it just i i had a hard time 
seeing past the metaphor. I felt pretty strapped in only by personal proxy. I, uh, you know, grew up with the only memories I really have of my grandfather, who was really well loved by my family, was him when he was already like well into the latter stages of Alzheimer's. And so my memory of him is is always that, you know, like growing up. And I was only ever able to hear the stories of the man he was. But all I ever saw and experienced of him was the end. Yeah. That can really change your perspective. And growing up around that sort of dementia, like, uh, and the, the stories around that, like, have definitely, like, haunted me in a very personal and specific way. And I felt like this film keyed into a lot of those things. And I've been witnessing similar things in one of my, like, current grandparents as well. And so those little key moments that weren't even built around classic horror, but more personal moments, like the the ring, where the grandmother uh, gives Sam the ring, and then later on she sees it on her and accuses her of stealing it. Those things were very personal for me like i i i really keyed into those moments and it it affected me like uh almost more than the the spooky monster under the bed well that's that's the thing i feel like i should clarify like this gripe that i have is pretty much a nitpick because i like this i like the way this movie handles things and i think that as a portrait of like a family dealing with the steady mental decline of one of their loved ones and seeing the way that that affects them hereditarily as well i think it's it's a masterclass it's one of the best depictions of that i've ever seen so like when i say that i that i don't think like the the horror aspects extend much beyond the metaphor it's like they don't necessarily have to. Yeah. I think that that's a way that that if it did do more with that, it would be higher elevated. But I think for what it is, it's quite successful. So I, I just I just want to I just want to clarify that because I think that the the scene where she forgets that she's given her granddaughter the ring is a is a very effective and tragic scene. Like ooh. Oh boy, this movie is a downer. Yeah. It is, yeah. It, <laughs> go ahead, so, Ted. So, sorry. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we often like run into when talking about horror, or in films in general, any kinds of criticism, is the difference between intention and personal preference. Mm-hmm. So there's this this, and this is something that's a little bit hard for a lot of critics to wrap their heads around, um, and it's something you always have to keep in mind, mm-hmm. which is that like there are certain things that like you're just not going to like as much because you don't like them as much or you're not going to find as scary. That's one of the reasons that I really hate this this whole term that's often used in, in the horror sphere by the most gatekeepy of gatekeepers where they're saying like, well, I thought I, I just didn't think it was scary. Like oh, it just I wasn't scary. And I always, I always hate that because like there's, there's things that you can criticize about a film or a game or whatever beyond like well i just didn't think like the i just didn't think it was scary argument it's like someone dropping the bible in front of you and being like well i believe this so you're done and it's like there's no discussion to be had at that point because like you can you can criticize the empirical elements of a thing but as soon as you just go well these are my feelings you're like okay well what am i going to say and 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 it's not that i i think that people don't can't feel a certain way it's like you know there's definitely merit to you know what you're saying with like this is what I prefer, but there's, there's personal preference. And then there's the intentionality of the filmmaker and and the intentionality of the filmmaker is like, so when you're talking about that slow burn at the beginning and that, like the, the time that it goes to, you know, there's no, there's no doubt 
that that was what the director intended, you know, like whether or not that resonated well with you is a different question. You know, a lot of times when we're criticizing bad movies, it's because the, the, the director tried to do a thing and failed. And I would say that nothing about um, The Relic or sorry, this film is just called Relic, by the way. Yeah. The Relic is like a 1997 monster <laughs> flick. But nothing about Relic feels unintentional, you know? Oh yeah, All, everything feels yeah. by design. This Wholehearted film light. is quite yeah. meticulous. Well, this is this is like we should mention like this is the as far as I know the debut feature of this director. She's very young. She's done some shorts and stuff. I saw but, some credits um, attached to uh, Upgrade of all things. What were you yeah, I think she was like Lee Wanell's assistant or something huh. on on that. Uh, yeah, IMDb that. just says miscellaneous. But yeah. um, but yeah, this is like her debut feature film. She's quite young, and I think that. She's definitely somebody that I want to watch further because I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly, Ted. Like, everything in this film feels very meticulously intentional. I also love that you bring up the people being like, oh, it's not good because it's not scary. We've never talked about that on this show before, but a, a really good example is like maybe a week ago or two, I had a, a, a friend who posted on like both Twitter and Facebook, like finally got around to seeing Her Hereditary. It's a great movie, but not scary at all. Oh. I don't know why anybody oh. says this movie is scary. It's like, okay, Okay, but you started out by saying it's a great movie. Like, yeah. why do you feel the need to attach that you didn't find it scary? Horror encompasses fear, but horror is much more than just fear. Yeah. That's, the, that's the weird thing about the horror genre is that unlike other genres, well, I guess if you get deep enough into any genre, there's an element of this. But like a big part of horror is like swinging the biggest dick. Yeah. Like that's just <laughs> yes. like the, the culture is like. Well, I'm not scared by anything. And it's like, oh, aren't you so cool? You're such a badass. And, like, I get this all the time where people are like, I bet nothing scares you anymore because you've seen all these movies. And I'm like, no, I get scared, like, pretty easily. That's why I like horror. I'm, like, actually pretty easily frightened, even though I watch so many movies. because, And that's why I watch them, because I, I find that enjoyable. And I, all these people that go around saying, like, not scary all the time. I'm like, do you have any fun doing anything? Right. Like, or, <laughs> or are you point. just, yeah. And I don't know. I, I always find it to be, it's like the weirdest of flexes to me. It's yeah. like, yeah. People, like I, I watched this thing and I appreciate the qualities, but I didn't enjoy it. It's like, really? Are you just going to go out in public and like publicly declare that you enjoy nothing? Like, what do yeah. you think is going to happen? Like, do you think that then when you once you have declared that all the movies don't scare you, you are then crowned king badass and everyone legally has to suck your dick? <laughs> right. Like, like you're the bravest. The you're the bravest motherfucker on the planet. And you're the coolest guy. Like, whatever. And, you know? and like to attach that to something else that you think is good too. like to use that as a qualifier. It's like it's good, but it's not scary. It's what who? fucking cares yeah, if yeah. it's good like, it's good i'm the type of person that like horror movies don't particularly like frighten me because i've become somewhat like disconnected from just like watching so much of it but they can still be impactful and have lasting effects like i'm not worried about having nightmares when i go to sleep after watching a horror movie but that doesn't mean that it can't still like really resonate with me on like a deep level you know like yeah. there's enough oh, scary yeah, there's enough scary shit in real life for me to be afraid of like there's there's enough scare there's enough i have enough things that i'm afraid of in the real world it's like 
okay, so if a movie doesn't, like, make me fucking piss my pants or whatever, that doesn't mean it's not a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it, also, like, yeah, it, it can be so detrimental and limiting to the genre, like, to just equate, like, horror film need to scare me or bad. Yeah, there, <laughs> right. there are so many more emotions to feel. Well, I think you make a good point about uh, the intent of the first half. The one thing I, I am not 100% sure of is the effectiveness in terms of the movie, especially with regards to how much it escalates in the second half with getting lost in the Silent Hill house section, essentially. Because it really goes from one to a hundred there. And I... I love that sequence. You know, I I would wonder if, you know, it's definitely my favorite section of the movie, and I wonder if sprinkling more elements of that may have worked better. I, I would almost compare this movie in some respects to something like Jacob's Ladder. Right. Oh yeah, you okay. know, uh, you know, it's that same kind of psychological horror about mental instability. But what Jacob's Ladder does is, you know, it sprinkles that in throughout the movie and it escalates throughout the movie. Whereas this movie, I feel like once we get to the Silent Hill house, I'll, I'll tub it. Uh, you know, it really escalates things uh, where the the rest of the movie wasn't quite there before. Now, when you're talking about Jacob's Ladder, you're, of course, talking about the 1990 original, yes, not the 2019 Which we've also I, covered I do, on the podcast. I do believe I'm the only person that has seen the 2019 remake. I think you it's might be. <laughs> we, the one person. We, uh, we covered uh, the, the 1991 uh, several months ago, and uh, I think we, in that episode, I think we might have talked about the trailer for the, uh, did, the, yeah. the new one, and how it looked just, like, absolutely unappealing to us in every way. Yeah. Was it... Yeah, was, that's, was that's it one of those films that where you can... Like, if we were going to criticize a filmmaker for making something bland and slow and uninteresting, it's like, that that that's the 2019 Jacob's Ladder to a T. I mean, it's the same plot, but instead of it being, um, like, the original, which is that he dies in... Well, actually, I do think it's even that he dies in war. But he's like, a, there's like this sub sub subplot about crack addiction and how how he's actually his brother or something like that. It's, <laughs> it's not a very good movie. Um, yeah, Amazing. it's it's very silly. I, I completely forgot what we were talking about because now I'm remembering. Oh, Jacob uh, Lutter, we were 2019. talking kind of about the escalation. Yes. With oh, the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. And, oh, um, I, I do. I do know what you're talking about, though, with with Relic, which is like, you know, she goes and she finds these notes and all of a sudden it's a horror movie like, you know, like like a more traditional horror movie. Now it's a haunted house movie. Yeah. And, and there's basically that moment where she finds the kind of the secret area and then and then it becomes a, a monster movie. Yeah. The Silent Hill House Haunting of Leaves. No, wait, hold on. I had something. Better <laughs> it was it's, sorry. I'm, I'm combining three things. Hold on. It's uh, the Silent Hill House of Leaves. That was it. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Silent Hill House go. of Leaves. That's good. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Um, I definitely saw the parallels between this and House of Leaves. Um, directly out of the book, some sequences. Kind of. Yeah. Like, the, the one where the, the walls are closing in um, uh, reminded me so much of the sequence where the text starts closing in uh, and Navidson is, like, crawling through the space as it begins progressive. It becomes progressively smaller. I was very happy to see that. That is by no means a critique. That's a, that's a point of praise for it's me. Because I love that book and I, I've wanted to see it adapted for uh, quite a long time. So seeing anything that comes close to it that pays such wonderful homage was 
underscore is quite nice. Yeah, I don't, I, think, I, I don't think you can adapt that book. I was, thank you. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. I liked to see some of those ideas expressed in this movie, something that's totally separate. I would hate to see anybody try to adapt House of Leaves because so much of what makes the book effective is reading the physical book and like the the way that like it plays with form. I cannot imagine that as as a as a film that does you, the book justice. You know, you know what? You're totally yeah. right. Uh, and when I say that, I specifically mean the Navidson record documentary. Well, Just yeah, and what I'm saying is, is that like if they were to make House of Leaves a movie, then it would have to like call your phone and give you sub narrations over the phone <laughs> while the movie plays. Right. You got to like, that was. It would have to do something really weird. I mean, like, you can't just make... I mean, even if you're just making a, a, a video recreation of the Navidson record, like, you'd have to have those layers to it because that's what makes House of Leaves so meaty. Because, like, the actual story of House of Leaves is kind of like, oh, there's a guy and he moves into a house and his wife doesn't like him very much and then the walls are spooky. But, like, the writing <laughs> style yeah. and, like, the... the, the yeah, is, is what makes it, like, so uniquely compelling. Mm-hmm. I agree wholeheartedly um let's talk about the house in this movie um because we have in the past talked about locations as characters you know classically in something like the shining i think this movie does that extremely well and uh, another reason that i kind of think like the uh we'll call it ghost for lack of a, a better term um i think almost distracts from the house as like the true monster of this film um, because it is, you know, a, a direct representation of the grandmother's mind. Um, it's uh, moldering, it's falling apart. And as we find uh, in the third act there, it contains sort of like a house within it. You know, she, the granddaughter finds this passageway that leads to this sort of like labyrinthine endless uh, hallway, endless hallways that lead nowhere. And just like, we see more of that degradation. And I, and this is once again, this comes down to per- personal taste. I would have loved to start getting into that stuff a little bit sooner. You wanted more of it. I want, I would have rather than having like the, the spooky ghost, like sort of looming in some parts in the early, the early, uh, acts. I would have rather started to introduce the idea of like the house as sort of like a, like a shifting maze a little bit more. I would have like, I would have liked to see more of that earlier. I think I, I actually felt it was well foreshadowed personally. The uh, yeah. the sequence where the where Sam is going down the staircase. I love how that's, oh, yeah, that, like, that's I, edited. I like it, that it's too, yeah. so good. And the the mother sort of appearing, them hearing the knocks in the walls, the neighbor being uh, trapped uh, in, in the room and not knowing why, I think was just enough information for that to feel like an epiphany in that moment when it is revealed to be an I, endless I think hallway. Narratively, a lot of that stuff works well. And I think the, you know, backstory of the cabin mm-hmm. and the, you know, stained glass window really adds to it a little bit more. The one thing I wish they would have elaborated on is kind of spatial awareness of the house as it is normally. I don't know if I could necessarily map out the whole house in my head. When that rug is pulled out from under you and, you know, you really don't know what's what in the house. You haven't seen the whole rug 
yeah, to have yeah, it pulled yeah. out from I, under I, you. I can you see know, that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Think of, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we watched Don't Breathe, which yeah. does a fantastic job of, you know, really mapping out spatially the house you're in. So you become more disoriented yeah. once it changes because you already have an idea mm-hmm. of how yeah. the house is laid out. Uh, I, th- I, think, I, get that. Yeah. I think narratively, the house is used excellently. Yeah. Though. And I think the foreshadowing of narrative elements, like the the knocks behind the walls, are really well done. And I want to make one final point while we're on the subject of like the scares and having an entity, uh, and, a, and a counterpoint to what I actually brought up earlier about like there being like a Babadook, there being a creature, is the title of the film. And I, I think it's it's well worth bringing up that the definition of relic is an object. Surviving from an earlier time, especially one of historical or sen- sentimental interest. And one of the greater fears uh, conjured in this film is becoming an object. Uh, <laughs> the urn on the wall is no longer a person. It is a thing. Mm-hmm. And as your mind degrades and you you become just a hollow form, you become a house. A library burns down. You become an object. Again, and that actually void, that lack of a monster is for me really effective because it's that idea of becoming nothing or becoming non-sentient. That's what I'm saying, though. Get rid of the mo- get rid of the monster and the house. The house let the house do everything. Oh, I That's see. So saying. more personality out of the, yeah, out of the yeah, emptiness. M- oh, okay. More personality out of the emptiness. I think that that uh, that visually the the ghost or the specter is well handled but i think it that's why i was saying i think it distracts from the the real monster which is this this house that's falling apart that is consuming the people inside it and losing things i think that that like if you start thinking of memories as relics too like she's losing everything she you know she tried to eat the photographs yes (laughs) yeah (laughs) call them snack shots (laughs) so like i I would i would be shocked if uh the director uh, natalie eric james didn't have someone in her life with dementia that she had like experienced because so so many of the moments are like so specific yeah. Um, yes. And it's it's really either she has a lot of personal experience from her own family or she did a shit ton of research for this because it's really, really rare that you find a director that can so uh, nakedly and truthfully get to the heart of what something is like, um, because that is basically like what dealing with someone with dementia is like. And, and <clears throat> whenever you're, you're writing a character with with something like that, it's very, very difficult to ride the line of realism while also quickly portraying your point. So oftentimes films will just have an explosive scene where someone's like, I can't remember my wife. And then they're screaming and, it doesn't, <laughs> like, and then it's kind of stupid. Um, it's, it's hammy. And then on the other end of the spectrum, um, you can have it be too slow of a build. And it, you know, I never really landed, but I never, I never, I never got the sense in this film that, that she was fine. You know, there was right. always like something's yeah. wrong. And but it, it got those moments of clarity right. Like it got the emotional swings right. It was so efficient in how it told its story that it, it, it struck me in a way that other films don't. Um, and I, I think that the, the 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 efficiency of that writing and I, I, the, the quality of that writing is is so good 
that a lot of these other concerns that we talk about, I think, are are secondary to that main point. And that's the thing that's kind of interesting about a film of this level of quality is that an indie film of this because this is like what how much what was the budget on this thing? It couldn't have been that. Big. I have no idea, but not much for sure. But you know, a film like this, which I, I know it was uh, supported by the Australian Film Grants or whatever, so this was like something that, um, like, a lot of the money must have came from various different nations of film grants to create art in the country or whatever. Um, yeah. Anyways, the point the point I'm making is that um, the fear that I think humans have of their own death and their own end and their inability to kind of like grapple with that is is very difficult to confront so we usually come up with these like increasingly obscure ways to handle and deal with that fact so the 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 implicit underpinning of a lot of supernatural films like the conjuring or whatever a lot of those hollywood blockbusters beat by beat scares but the overall message is one of optimism because the message ultimately is death is not the end it's like you're you're watching um the exorcist or something like that and oh isn't it terrible that this demon is assaulting the body of this poor girl but the silver lining is that the priest was right god loves you and you're going to heaven right um and there's <laughs> there's a lot of that there's a lot of that in in horror films especially supernatural horror films is like no matter what it's like there is this life after death. Even something like The Ring is like she turned into a monster, blah, blah, blah. But that's, there's now the possibility that there is a spirit, an everlasting spirit beyond what we have. The struggle of the, the proof of that spirit or whatever you believe is one of the great internal struggles that every person has when they're trying to like come to terms with their own mortality. Now, Relic is a film that has this monster but it also completely doesn't have that sense of life after death. It does not have the sense of there is something grander because there is always the level of metaphor. The ghost is, and, is not a ghost. Well, and that's the thing is that there, there are two levels. There are two levels to relic. There is the fact that, you know, the things that you are seeing on the screen are clearly a metaphor, but they also could be happening on the screen. Like they also like this also there could be a demon in this house because they have this whole thing about how there's like there's these monsters that take the bodies of people. And obviously it's a metaphor for dementia. But I mean, like when we're talking about like the real life world of people with, quote, demonic possessions, et cetera, like those could also just have been people with dementia. Right. Like in real life, that could have been the case. But maybe every person that has dementia in the real world is possessed by a demon. We don't fucking know. Like, <laughs> that could that could be the case. I don't think it's the case. I highly doubt that that's the case. But um, oh, it sounds like burden of proof to me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I'm saying is, is that you know this is this is one of those rare few supernatural horror movies that doesn't have any kind of like theological underpinning. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it, it feels both more barren because you don't have this existing lexicanum to pull from, but it also feels like infinitely more human. And um, I, and that, and that is what like really, really terrified me about the film is that the monster in it is like something that doesn't feel like I'm not safe from this monster in this film. Right. Like uniquely amongst all the other monsters and all the other monster films, this specific one, I'm not safe from because it is essentially just dementia. And um, I think I sidetracked us from our, our previous point, which I apologize. But oh, no, um, this movie strikes me in such a such a uniquely resonant way that I, I I'm just trying to still grapple around because that's the thing is that like this this film 
have you ever tried to like really visualize a needle in your brain? It like hurts your eyes to like visualize it. Trying to just like picture a needle coming towards your face to think about it. It, 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 it there's something inside of you that's like, ah, I don't want to do that. It, um, or if you're scared of spiders, trying to visualize a spider right there in front of you and jumping at you, like it's just difficult to do. And this film, it's so poignant in certain ways that I I struggle to truly have a developed opinion on certain aspects of it because when I do my mind recoils and um, I think that that's 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 truly unique and fascinating the mold uh, on a visual level is I think so effective there like we all should have uh, for survivalistic purposes like we should have that negative reaction to seeing mold on things like when you open your fridge and you see like your leftovers have that that like dark decay mm-hmm. on them you should feel your stomach churn you're supposed to feel that way well yeah i yeah. mean like like you said it's it is it's representational of decay which is scary on a instinctual level because like that is the fate of all things and like it's hard to pull like off. rotting and and degrading and it's like that is going to happen to you no matter what so many films will use that for like gross out factor and and leave it there like and that that's all that it means but here it really does become something greater for that and when you tie that metaphor into something so physically churning like i think yeah you really do get something that that pops that, and that's really I think, effective i think the return of the grandmother herself is a fantastic element of that metaphor too i think it's one of the strongest points of the movie is her role in the film is kind of the the mother and the daughter's memory of her as it decays and the memory of her is less of her as they originally remembered her and more as the memories of her as she decays and her as she is less senile and as a reminder for what's in store for them yes yes that's what i like about like multi-generational stories like this um it's hard to not tie it to uh hereditary in some ways uh i think that would have been a a a suitably fitting title for this movie as well um uh but like sam the, the the granddaughter feels this like duty toward taking care of her grandmother because her mother sort of recoils from that because it scares her because she sees herself much closer to that she sees what's happening to her mother and is afraid that it will happen to her as well and the idea of having to take on the the burden of caring for somebody you know with dementia or alzheimer's it's like a daily reminder that like this could and very well be me soon yeah i think one of the most horrifying parts of it too is the idea that the times you spend with uh, a loved one where they're not completely there are so big and almost traumatic in Mm -hmm. your mind that they replace the memories that you have of them when they had all of their faculties. Right. And I think that is really emphasized, especially around the end. At the very end. Yeah. Yeah. I think let's, let's get, we can go back and talk about other stuff too, but let's get into the end a little bit. um, Cause we're, we're kind of naturally, Mm -hmm. um, 
coming up on that. And I, I think that I would actually push back a little bit against the idea that this film is totally devoid of... Uh, I, I don't know, uh, hope at the end. Like, I think it is on its surface very bleak, but I think that there is something almost life-affirming in the the acceptance that the family yes. finds at the end. It's like, it's sad and it's horrible, but, you know, Emily Mortimer has been fighting against this idea that uh, of, like, taking care of her mother because she's afraid that that's what she'll become. But at the end... She or by the end, rather, she's reached a point where the pain and the horror and the fear is worth it because she still loves her mother. The house and the grandmother lash back the most when there is the fear of her being placed in a home, when the when the denial is is raised trying to ignore the grandmother put her somewhere else that's when it lashes back that's when the beast becomes an immediate threat as soon as they accept it the threat is still there but it stops being immediate the grandmother once the daughter approaches her and just tries to care for her at the very end the grandmother becomes docile and And we get that we get that cutaway to the the sticky note on the floor because the grandma's leaving sticky notes all over the place to like remind herself and at that moment we get the sticky note that just says you You are are loved. Yeah. Exactly. I like it's Oof. so Goosebumps. it's so sad and so bleak, but that willingness to confront the horror in its face and to have that long agonizing scene of her like peeling off the 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 skin of the grandmother to reveal mm-hmm. this just mm-hmm. like shriveled blackened husk and to then like lay down beside her it's like yeah you're exactly like you're saying ben it's like what she has become is replacing their idea of what she was before but still their sense of duty and love keeps them there they don't run from it they they confront it at the end and it you know in in that regard i think that there is a kind of light a kind of hopefulness not not the promise of heaven or afterlife or that things are going to get better but that love can win in the end kind of yes if i could talk once again about like personal experience in tandem with this film how like growing up with my grandfather sort of put like a this this fear of god you know in me of this one day potentially being me because you know like alzheimer's is known to skip generations I, i take after my grandfather a lot like genetically so like there's there's a lot of concern and it's always been like a fear that is sort of gnawed at my you know the back of my neck and growing up the way I was able to come to terms with that was acceptance and just recognizing my timeline might be more limited. Mm-hmm. I might not get as long. Maybe I do. Maybe the dice, you know, like roll well for me. I don't know. But I also know that there's a chance that, you know, the, the dice will just come up poorly. And my acknowledgement of that, my acceptance of that allows me to just say, I will make what time I have valuable. And and that's why, like, I'm so driven for my work. I think it's also, like, uh, a large component of things like the Bushido Code, where you're supposed to meditate on your death, you know, for, like, 15 minutes every day. There, there's, there's something to that acceptance of death that removes the fear of it and just allows you to say, okay, when it comes, it comes, and I will just be my best self until that day. And that will be fine. 
and and this film like does such a good job of 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 covering that. So even even though the 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 light casting that shadow, the god behind the demon, you know, that must also exist is not as present, is not as clear at the end. It is still there. There there is yeah, that idea of like acceptance and love like can still at the very least mitigate the horror. Yeah, but it doesn't I agree with you. But I don't think that um, the film hits you over the head with it. Like, it's not. Oh, yeah, I agree. A, a, a ray of light doesn't descend. It does, like, the, no, the, no. Right. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God here's for it. This, here's how this movie would work if it was a worse movie. Um, <laughs> the, the, that window, that window with the mold would shatter and light would shine through. And then. <laughs> God, you're so right. Grandma, oh, my God. Yeah. The, black, the black parts of the grandma would begin to heal and she would be better. And then, you know, they would all go out I with believe the photo in fairies. album and they would plant a tree to, to represent their new life. <laughs> oh. And then they would, they would, you know, they would take a piece of the photo album and then you'd have to have something that would make the grandma more of a victim. Like you'd have to find out that her husband was abusive or something and that now she's free from that and she would bury the book of pictures and the memories to therefore symbolize her starting of a new life. But no, you don't get that. And the you granddaughter would get a boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, she would, she would come out as gay because this is 2020 and everyone would be okay with that and then old grandma wouldn't have any weird opinions about it. She would, she would something about along the lines of like you know what i fought for civil rights and this is what you get to and like it would just be like that would be how this movie would work if it was part of the conjuring franchise for sure um and i love that they don't like they don't do that they what instead you get is like this is what you get you get if you are lucky to be with someone as they die and if you are the dying person if you are lucky then you get to have your loved ones there to care for you as you crumble into nothingness. Yes. And it's like, and that, and that's it. And that's, that's the credits in, in real life, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And, sure. um, and then of course we get the last shot of the movie, which is the daughter reaching towards her mother's back. Cause there's a piece of black. Oh, and, and, and to be for everyone at home listening, um, the 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 decay on the physical body is is visible on the grandmother before uh, she becomes uh, a, a cripple demon, whatever yes. those like the thing at the end, and um, so she sees like a spot of blackness on her mother's back that is to imply that this that her mother also is going to get dementia, and yeah. and even if she doesn't get dementia, we're all gonna you know lose our faculties and die someday. Right. Yar, she has the black spot, maybe. maybe. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's there's definitely that that idea, that theme of, you know, this being something passed uh down through families. The the cabin that used to be on the property where, you know, they took the uh the stained glass window from uh they mentioned that like her great grandfather lived there and that he, you know, lost lost his mind or something. And we keep seeing that in her in her nightmares which gotta say again like those those dream sequences are very very oh, well done chef kiss. Yeah. Uh, chef kiss i'm i'm very wary of dream sequences in horror movies we've talked about that a lot but mm -hmm. i think just as like being uh effective horror set pieces uh these are these are quite well done but like yeah seeing the 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 moldering and rotting but still living corpse of her great-grandfather in these dreams and like waking up it's like that's like yeah this is 
this is coming for you. And I think that there's something really powerful in that that scene of the, the granddaughter touching that black spot on her mother, too, because I think it's also her realizing that, yeah, not only is this going to come for her mother, but it'll probably come for her, too. It's right. like it's it's coming that they're all lying down next to each other at the end. And it's like, yeah, this is going to come down the line. It's it's inescapable. I'm so glad they uh, did not do any of what you described, Ted. Like, holy <laughs> fuck. That would be so bad. <laughs> and once again, to call back to the Babadook, too. Like, I think that the that that film does a great job of that as well. Like in, in the the moral of the Babadook. And I think in the Babadook, it does feel a little bit more like a ray of sunshine. It is like shot very uh, warmly at the end where like she gives it a bowl of milk, you know, and it's it a bowl of worms. Oh, yeah. Just to feed it with decay. Yeah. But I mean, even in the Babadook, you know, it ends with her saying, you know, when when the son asks about it, she says it's quiet today. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, today, the trauma and the depression and stuff today, it's not quiet. But that doesn't mean it doesn't mean it'll be quiet tomorrow, well, you know? Yeah, um, I, I don't think the Babadook would have been as, as big of a demon if the kid wasn't such a piece of shit, though. <laughs> 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 it definitely had something to do with it. That's for sure. I mean, yeah, we, we so talked about thing. that. Too. I, I don't want to I don't want to sidetrack into a discussion of the Babadook. I'm not I, I'm not a huge fan of the Babadook because that kid is so fucking annoying. Like I would have murdered that kid so fast. Like if that kid like if, if I was looking after someone's kid and they were like, I dressed up like a wizard and I shot you with a pencil crossbow. I'd be like, all right, well, no one's ever finding you again. Like that's just well, sorry. To- like. To go back to your point, like, and we did do an episode on the Babadook a while ago, but uh, don't don't you think don't you think that that's intentional in the Babadook? Don't I, think I that- definitely think it's intentional. I'm not saying it's a bad film. There's a big difference. What I'm saying is, <laughs> is that, sure. that this is an example of on the flip side that child annoyed me as a person, yeah, which got in the felt. way of my enjoyment of the film. But I would never give it less of a score or a worse rating because of the kid. You know. Sure. I think, yeah, I think that the kid is supposed to be annoying. You know, he's he's she she's so hung up on the death of her husband and what she lost and that the child that came out of it. You know, it's so much of the movie is her struggling to not blame the kid for the death of her husband. Mm-hmm. So to paint him as like a really problematic, like devil child almost, you know, it's like she has to. Yeah. She has to cope with that, just like she has to cope with everything else. And, you know, at the end, with, like, the Babadook's quiet that day, and the kid is good. He's good that well, day. I, I he might not be the say, next day. And this is a good this is a good uh, juxtaposition to the relic. Um, oh, sorry, to relic, not the relic. I don't <laughs> want to get people confused, once again, with the 1997 monster flick. But uh, Babadook, um, there's a point about halfway through the movie where the kid becomes the good guy. Um, not halfway, probably like 70% through the movie. Before that, the kid's like a, a terrorist. Like he's he's just like actively plotting the downfall of the West. Um, and then <laughs> as soon as the demon starts being like demony and stuff and takes over his mom, there's this like one scene where he's like, mommy, I just love you so much. And he becomes like a little cutesy kid. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like this kid was a terrorist 12 seconds ago. And now we're supposed to sympathize with him. The switch has flipped real fast in, in going from this kid's a piece of shit to like, now it's a magical adventure where he's going to use slingshots to fight the demon. I'm like, now it's like home alone. And then at the end, he's just like a cute kid. I think, and I'm like, oh, sorry. well, like, okay, first off, 
I would have paid like real cash dollars if there was a scene in that movie where the mom just do, like double foot drop kicks the kid in the chest. Like I would have loved that so much. He like flies against a wall, like ugh, and then like the crossbow, like doing like you can do it Looney Tunes like yeah, style child too. abuse would have really made the the mom more relatable. I, I oh uh, my god, I totally... so much more relatable. <laughs> Anyways, the but the that that is like a shift that happens really really starkly in the Babadook, and that I think is. Um, a a sign of the director. Uh, I can't remember the the director of the Babadook. Jennifer her name Kent. Is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. She. It was also her first movie, and I think that that was more of a sign of her kind of uh, amateurishness. Is that 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 transition from him being an absolute nightmare to this good cutesy wholesome angel child was too stark, and I think that that was like an amateurish. Whereas in Relic, what you're talking about is like the the shift from things being not silent house on haunted hill to silent house on haunted hill of leaves um yeah that shift was i think more first off the the starkness of that shift is less unwelcome and it's also less drastic because there are things that hint at it before like nowhere before in the movie of the babadook where you're ever like this kid's okay it was always he's a terrorist whereas in this movie you're like things aren't okay there seems to be something worse going on and then when you uncover that you're like oh and i think that that was really symbolic of the daughter learning more about the dementia because at the beginning of the movie, she's like, grandma's fine, which is very, very common for younger right. people to just deny that there's anything bad going she on. She just forgets things. That's what she keeps saying. And then she discovers it firsthand when the mother, the grandmother is like, you're stealing from me. And she's like, Jesus, fuck, no. And then she kind of sees the, she's the one that discovers the depths of like what's happening and is like, Oh my God, like this is so tragic and terrifying. And it like, and you know, when the shifting of the walls is also a metaphor for her own shifting perspective, trying to recontextualize her grandmother, given these things that she's seen the crushing, the potentially crushing like weight of like, how do I rectify that the person that I love is also the person that has become this. So, so many layers to it. It's so, it's so wonderfully deep and and I love that about it and I feel that so there's the there's the layer of a movie that you have to justify in your brain and that's like the smartness stuff the, the smart the smarty the smarty level um the the higher cognitive level of a film that you know a lot of it is 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 basically people sitting on podcasts and you know jerking off to the sounds of their own voice which is you know apparently what all podcasts are I mean um, yeah, that's absolutely. all we're doing yeah, yeah. that's all we're doing that's all we're doing but and then there's the level of gut reaction. And I will say is that the gut reaction that I felt through the entirety of, of Relic was uh, a, a very satisfying, deep sickness and dread, which is what I think the film was going for. Um, whereas in Babadook, I just wanted to two foot drop kick a child. Well, uh, as as a bisexual, I have to defend my gay horror icon, the Babadook, and uh, and, uh, and just... how is the Babadook gay? Uh, oh, it's not. That's why it's so funny. Uh, there, uh, quick uh, to further this tangent, real quick. Uh, there was an accident in the Netflix algorithm, and it started trending under LGBT movies, oh. and so the gay community just ad- adopted it. Just co-opted. So yeah, the Babadook. Uh, uh, soon after, during Pride uh, events, people were dressing as the Babadook during like Pride and such, and it's great and i love it yeah, uh now the it, has, no, it is... has nothing to do with with queerness <laughs> or the lgbt community and i think that makes it even better that it's been adopted into that but anyway uh, they also did the same thing with pennywise with the recent it movie oh did they 
Uh, well, the gay community did, and they Excellent. just said that the Pennywise is the Babadook's boyfriend now. Oh, so, I love that. Yeah, oh, yeah I, I ship it. I ship it. Uh, so, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, the uh, uh, to, to defend that uh, real quick, and why I actually see the kids' sudden shift as by design, and I might have mentioned this on the podcast. I don't remember. It was a while back. Is I've seen that in kids too. Like that felt very real to me. Like that sudden shift. Kids are still learning who they are, and they they do that. Like they'll they'll turn on the waterworks, you know. And it is a a very manipulative tool that that sudden change of of personality, and you, they do that. So I will I'll actually say like I didn't see that as a, a sign of amateurism, though I I can. I can perceive the other side. I do. I do dig mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I mean that's fair. And I'm not. And like I said, I'm not trying to sit here and say like the Babadook is a bad movie. I would just I mean, say that I. Want. No, no, no. And I, I actually have been guilty of that in the past, just to be an edge lord. Like when I was younger, twenty. I can't remember when the Babadook came out. When it came out, I was like, this movie sucks because I was trying to be an edge lord. But I, I've since grown out of that. Well, we all have to grow and learn. Well, relic. I think I've covered all of my points. Do you guys have any th- other things you want to hit before we write? Um, I thought the sound design was pretty good. Oh, yeah. Um, the overall. creaking house. Yeah. I, I will say this. Relic is, has a, a very high chance of being overlooked because of the pandemic and because uh, no one wants to watch depressing movies right now. And yeah. also uh, there's no theaters, so it's very hard to get things. to. And there's no word of mouth because no one can talk to each other anymore in person. And it's not and, an American um, film, too. You know, it's not American film. Well, I mean, neither was the Babadook, and that that made its rounds. But um, I I will say, you know, Relic is – there's a very, very high chance that this one will go ironically forgotten. At the same time, that's that's a great tragedy because I think that – I genuinely believe that any fan of film – filmmaking as an art form and any fan of horror – as, as a medium, like really inundated in horror as a medium, they, they need to watch this movie, even if it's not their, their type of movie, because there's certain films that will widen the breadth of what the genre can do. And I think that Relic is intentionally designed enough and metaphoric enough while still being grounded and real enough to be a new kind of benchmark for artsy horror and you might not like artsy horror. I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to say everyone has to like the types of films that I like. But I do think that if you're going to be an aficionado of a genre, you have to be aware of the various different – the perimeters of the genre, what the, the, the frontiers of the genre, and what films are pushing those frontiers further. It like is I a said, gateway really drug. Like, like this film – you're absolutely right. Like I, I think this film is an excellent gateway drug into more academic horror. Yeah, well, and I I think that um, it's not even just like a gateway drug into more academic horror. It's a solid piece of academic horror that also people that aren't super into academic horror can still grasp. Oh, yeah. Um, It's accessible and it's accessible, but like definitely outside of the the realm of like Hollywood horror. And I think having a tight 88 minute runtime definitely helps with that, you know. I, oh yeah, we didn't even mention the runtime because like the, the thing is, is that a movie like this done by a film student would be six hours long, like <laughs> seriously, and it would That's it would so feature cute. so many shots of the mother and daughter eating oatmeal at breakfast, and then like 
not saying anything until the mother says something like, so what are you? And then the daughter just goes, ah, and then leaves. And then it's like, wasn't that so real? Didn't you just feel that? And it's like the only reason that scenes in the movie is because like the, the daughter, like the real life filmmaker had to like call her mom to ask for money. And like the mom asked how she's doing. And she's like, I'm doing fine. Like always mom. My mom's like, whatever happened to that boyfriend? She's like, I came out to you like three months ago. She's like, I know I was just hoping that. And then she puts it all in the movie. All of that goes right in the movie. We're, for word and that, that's how like an amateur filmmaker tends to make this kind of movie and then as you get older and you like want money you stop having those emotions and you start making transformers and this is like an excellent fantastic little snapshot into a young filmmaker who still has that fire and the passion but is also uniquely rawly talented and i i, I think it's fantastic yes yeah. a great example of that is how sam um inherently wants to help look after the grandmother you know, mm-hmm. she's yeah. she's the young one and and she is unafraid of it. And so often you get that she's young the pe- farthest removed from it. Right. And how yeah, stereotypical yeah, yeah. is it for like the young person to be scared of the old, to be scared of death? And she's not. And it, it's so much people. more real for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I Ted, I think that you have uh, uh, summarized the film and your thoughts on it really well. Why don't you give us our uh, first rating? What would you rate yeah. relic? out of five. Oh, oh a pods also on the yes. podcast we, we do pods we do pods although i'm the only one who really adheres to that because y'all do stars constantly <laughs> or whatever yeah just, po- so it's the same well we and dread central used to do knives so it was like five knives oh, nice. out of five or whatever or how many ever many, many knives out of five so it's out of five yeah and halves are fine halves are fine yeah for all the reasons that i have st- enumerated in this podcast uh i would give this okay I will probably never watch this movie again because it depressed the fuck out of me. Um, Same with like a game like The Last of Us 2. Uh, I will probably never play The Last of Us 2 again. Loved it. Think it's a landmark title. We'll probably never play it again. So if I'm talking about my like personal feelings on this film, I'm probably never going to watch this again. That being said, I would still 100 percent give it a five out of five because this is this is a film that I think is if you are going to be a horror scholar a person that studies horror, a horror a hyper fan, whatever. That is how I'm judging this film is like anyone that's a horror hyper fan absolutely has to watch this movie. Um, anyone that's like a horror scholar has to watch this movie. Anyone that's interested in the frontiers of filmmaking has to watch this movie. I think it's, it's, it's brilliant and it's beautiful. And it's also, if, if I ever watch this movie again, I have to love the person that's asking me to watch it so fucking much. <laughs> and, and like, seriously, like it, this is like, or someone has to have a gun to my head, but I, I, I still love the film and I would give it a five out of five. That's what I'm, that's my opinion. All right. Strong five out of five. Uh, Ben, what about you? Sure. Uh, you know, I had some issues with some of the pacing in the first act, uh, in regards to the escalation. But the one thing I'll say about that is, you know, I think, uh, an 88 minute runtime really lessens that, issue overall and i think the metaphor and the ideas are really interesting and really profound uh and impactful i i think a lot of the uh things uh, with dementia are really uh hit home and they're very emotional overall i'm gonna give this a three and a half out of five i think it's definitely worth checking out cleave uh personally i found no flaws and uh i 
uh, and it, this film appealed to everything I could have asked for. Going off of the trailer, I was expecting a classy uh, haunting ghost film, and what I got was so much more. Uh, it's yeah, it's an easy five from me. All right, and I will round us out. Um, I I think this movie does a lot of things extremely well. I'm really excited to see the way that uh, this young filmmaker's career progresses. I think she's definitely one to look out for. A um, lot of good uh, female uh, directors out of Australia doing uh, horror these days, so I'm well on board with that um i think that uh yeah the trailer doesn't quite uh represent this movie in i I think in a good way though like it it, it presents it as a subversion sure i uh i think that um like i mentioned early in the show uh i think that it struggles a little bit to to look beyond its metaphor i think it's it's uh very literal and uh as as a like haunting story is maybe ineffective but as a uh very bleak and sad and honest portrait of uh you know a family struggling with a a loved one having dementia uh it is uh, extremely powerful uh, i definitely think this is one to to check out as well especially considering the weird mismatch of 2020 horror films stuff that was supposed to come out and didn't stuff that we didn't even know about was coming and just sort of dropped on vod uh yeah this is this is one to watch i'm gonna give it a four out of five uh so that will give relic between us an average of 4.4 out of five pods uh so definitely check it out um next week i believe it is uh cleveland's pick for uh, what we're going to be talking about. Uh, have you decided what that's going to be, Cleve? Yeah, so uh, I <laughs> talked to you guys about potentially watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. <laughs> um, and I watched the trailer for it after y'all left last night and decided uh, uh, that I would rather watch Young Frankenstein. Oh, okay. Again, so how would y'all feel about Young Frankenstein? Okay, it's a horror comedy. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, I need some muppy. Yeah, I was uh, I was fully expecting you to make us watch Abbott and Costello, and I was expecting uh, to have a really bad time the next episode. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm still holding that one in my back pocket. Don't think it's totally gone. And same with Scooby Doo on Zombie Island. One day, one day, you're I'm gonna pull that one out. Waiting for one of us to just, pick a bad. Just get ready. Title. Oh yeah, yeah you're, waiting, you're waiting for revenge. Yeah, yeah, and I I will get back at you for Greasy Strangler. It will happen. Oh, uh, Reese Strangler. That's a movie. <laughs> it is. It is a movie. And Cleveland's got some really strong opinions on that. I do, and they're and they're on the, epi- the that episode that we did for reviewing it. <laughs> and I also, as strong as my opinions are on that film, I think it's one of our best podcast episodes. I would agree. Uh, if you haven't listened to that, go listen to it. Uh, yep. And come back next week for uh, our review of Young Frankenstein. A, uh, we haven't done a horror comedy in a little bit. What we do in the shadows um, wasn't too 
long. Wasn't too long ago. It's hard to keep track of time during uh, quarantine. Uh, everything all blends into one. The walls are closing in. Exactly. Uh, but anyway, if you like the show, be sure to go on to Apple Podcasts and hit those five stars, leave a nice review, share an episode with your friends and family. You can follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod and check out our Letterboxd page at letterboxd.com slash PodPeoplePod where you'll find a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those episodes. Uh, I'm on Twitter at DeepStateOzzy. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Sheets. And I'm occasionally tweeting for Light Arc Studio as we further progress on It Stares Back, our early access horror RTS game that is spooky and fun. Um, I can also be found on ArtStation. If you search Cleveland Mosier, check out my super fun, creepy paintings. And also, uh, Ted, if it's okay for me to say, too, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, go uh, ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you'll, you can see my uh, work where I've collaborated with Ted on uh, the Dread Collection, the Dread X Collection 2. So mm. look out for my spooky skeletons that I painted in, in that awesome game. And it really does look awesome. I'm super excited to play it. Yes, well, uh, on that subject, Ted, we have been so happy to have you joining us, so let's take a minute, uh, plug whatever you would like. Tell us where uh, people can find you and what they should be looking out for. Uh, yeah, I don't really tweet personally. Um, I uh, have way too hot of takes for that. I don't think the internet's ready for all my opinions yet. But, I feel that. Um, I have a company Twitter, which I sometimes have mild versions of my horrible thoughts on. Uh, it's going to be at DreadXP. So, and then the game is coming out, DreadX Collection Volume 2. I mean, it's just DreadX Collection 2. Shit, we dropped the volume. Just DreadX Collection 2. It is the sequel to the DreadX Collection, uh, hence the two. And uh, you can already find the DreadX Collection on Steam. Uh, by the time this comes out, You'll probably be able to find uh, Dreadx Collection 2 as well. It's coming out August 21st. So, you know, right around the corner, everyone will be able to get their hands on it. Oh, y'all have that uh, date you'll... certain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, cool. I need to re-edit that like... announcement. Uh, this might be yeah. uh, coming out right around that same time. So uh, that's, yeah, that's, pretty, perfect. that's pretty perfect. Excellent. And, um, you know, this one. This one's really, really awesome. The first one was 10 games made in seven days. This one's 12 games made in 10 days. And you'd think that those extra three days, you know, wouldn't make that much of a difference. Oh. But, oh, my gosh. Don't the games they. coming out this time are are so good. I'm, I'm so excited for people to be able to see it and get their hands on it and experience what we have in store for you guys. So. It's so substantial. It's amazing. I uh, yeah. yeah, it's incredible. It's really kind of incredible what we've managed to put together in such a small period of time. So I just uh, checked my calendar, and this episode uh, will be dropping the day before the Dread X2. Nice. So uh, if you're listening Thanks. to this, uh, the game might already be out, so definitely go check it out. And I think that will do it for us this week. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. This was a really excellent discussion of Relic, and uh, we'd love to have you back sometime. No problem, guys. Yeah, just let me know. I always love talking about movies. We do need a sponsor. For oh, the podcast. yeah. Well, we, hurry we up. This forget. is a long yes, episode. Yes, yes. Uh, this episode was brought to you by uh, Gentle Rolling Hill Mills, uh, everyone's favorite cereal distributor, and their <laughs> new line of cereal, Moldios. Get your Moldios today and, and embrace the decay. They'll turn you <laughs> into a husk. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Come back and join us next week uh, for something completely different and uh, much less dour. Uh, goodbye. <laughs>